We are uh, continuing our discussion of the three trainings in the context of uh, how they can help us in daily life. And this entails putting into practice the so-called Eightfold Path. The three trainings are in ethical self-discipline, concentration, discriminating awareness, and we use or try to implement right speech, right uh, action or behavior, and the right way of making a livelihood in order to develop ethical self-discipline. And now we have uh, begun our discussion of the training and concentration. And the three things that are entailed here are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We saw that uh, right effort is to put effort into trying to avoid disturbing ways of thinking, destructive ways of thinking, and put effort into trying to rid ourselves of bad habits, our shortcomings in terms of various qualities that we have, whatever qualities they may be, and put effort into developing good qualities like more patience and uh, more kindness, whatever the good qualities are that we are uh, deficient in and we need to try to develop, or if we already have them, to develop them more. And to put more effort into trying to rid ourselves of the obstacles to concentration. And this can be very wide-ranging. We went through uh, the five types of obstacles to concentration that are mentioned in the text. But there are many measures that uh, we can take that are beyond this. I'm thinking, for instance, when we are working to turn our cell phone off or to decide that each day we're only going to look at our messages or our email, these sort of things, at certain times of the day, not to have it completely open so that uh, we're able to concentrate and focus on whatever it is that we need to do. You know, like a uh, doctor or a professor has office hours. You can't just come at any time. There are certain hours when uh, they're available. So similarly, we can do that with ourselves. As with the doctor, if there's an emergency, of course you can contact. But uh, other than that, to set certain hours, a certain time that we're going to devote to our social networking or whatever, and keep that strictly. So this will help us to develop our concentration. It's very interesting if we look at uh, social development that uh, in prior times the main obstacles to uh, concentration had to do with our own mental states, mental wandering, daydreaming, this sort of thing. But now there's so much more, there's so many more obstacles externally from all this uh, text messaging, Facebook and Twitter and email, all of these sort of things. So we really need to put a great deal of effort into uh, not just being overwhelmed by that. In order to do that, we need to recognize the detrimental features of these media. And one of the most detrimental ones is that our attention span gets shorter and shorter and shorter. When everything is with, uh, you know, Twitter only a, a certain limited number of characters, or the constant scrolling of these uh, Facebook messages and so on. Everything is very fast, so you don't get into anything. It's always changing. And so that builds up a terrible habit, detrimental to concentration, because you don't stay with attention on anything. It's constantly has to change. So this is something to watch out for.
Okay, now the uh, next feature, next aspect of the Eightfold Path that is involved with concentration is right mindfulness. Mindfulness is uh, mental glue, basically. When you're concentrating or holding on to an object, this prevents you from letting go. It's accompanied with alertness. Alertness is to detect if your attention is wandering or if you become dull and sleepy. And then you use attention to uh, how you regard the object, how you look at the object. And what is uh, involved here is how we pay attention to our body, our uh, feelings, our mind, our various mental factors. In other words, how do we regard them or how do we consider them? And then the mindfulness that holds on to it. So what we uh, want to avoid is holding on and not letting go of incorrect ways of considering our body and feelings and so on. When we don't let go, it causes us to be distracted and not to be able to concentrate. Well, that's a little bit abstract, isn't it? So uh, we need to explain that. Well, that's a little bit abstract, isn't it? So uh, we need to explain that. И, конечно, это объяснение несколько абстрактно, и нам было бы полезно углубиться. A body. When we talk about the body, we're talking about, in general, our body or various physical sensations or aspects of our body. And what is an incorrect consideration of it is that the body is pleasurable by nature. Well, when we uh, look at our bodies, or that it's clean and beautiful by nature, so we're very, very much distracted with worrying about how we look, for example and spending an hour with your hair and your makeup and how you dress and so on. This is a tremendous distraction. Now, of course, we need to keep clean and uh, look presentable, but when you go to an extreme and think that, ah, the way the body looks is a source of pleasure and it always has to be wonderful and like that, always to try to attract others to uh, our bodily appearance, we're not focused on anything more meaningful, are we? And uh, if we look at uh, the body, if you're sitting, then you become uncomfortable, and then you have to move. You're lying down, and this position is uncomfortable, that position is uncomfortable. There are problems, aren't there? We get sick, we uh, grow old. Now, of course, you need to take care of your body, make sure that you're in good health, exercise, and so on. But to be overly focused on that, that this is going to be the source of lasting pleasure, is a problem. So, this uh, incorrect mindfulness that we want to get rid of, this wrong mindfulness, is holding on and not letting go to the idea that the way my hair is, is the most important thing, and uh, that I am color-coordinated with my clothing, and that everything is in order, and so on, that this is so important, and this is the source of what's going to bring me happiness. Stop holding on to that. And the correct mindfulness would be that it's not a source of that, it's just a problem, and it's going to waste my time, and uh, prevent me from concentrating on something more meaningful. Or I always have to be clean, I always have to clean my hands all the time. Well, even if you touch something dirty, so what? You can wash your hands. So not to be this uh, cleanliness fanatic. And afraid to touch anything dirty. Anyway, <laughs> I'll go further into that, but there are many things that uh, we certainly wouldn't want to get on our hands. But even if you got it on your hands, so what? You can wash your hands. Don't worry. Oh, you know. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> 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 then there, 
The next one is uh, concerning feelings. And here we're talking about the feelings of unhappiness or happiness. And uh, this has to do with basically the source of uh, suffering, the source of problems. You see, when we are unhappy, the term that's used here is uh, a thirst. So it's like you're really thirsty that uh, I have to get rid of this uh, unhappiness. And if we have a little bit of happiness, it's like you know, you're really thirsty and you have a little bit of sip of water and you feel a little bit happy, but you're thirsty, you have to have more. So this is the source of problems, basically. When we regard this unhappiness as the most horrible thing in the world and I have to get rid of it by any means, that makes a problem with concentration. How does it make a problem with concentration? We're sitting and I'm a little bit uncomfortable, or I'm not in a good mood, or I'm unhappy. Well, as I was explaining last time that I was here, nothing special. So what? You just continue with your work. I have a headache, or I am not in a very nice mood, or whatever. So what? Don't hold on to that as this is the most horrible thing, and then I'm worried about it, and how do I get rid of it, and this is so awful, and complaining to myself in my mind, and complaining to anybody else who's around. That makes a serious obstacle to concentrating on doing whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're just talking to somebody, let alone working. Or if we're feeling okay, we're in a good mood, and so on, don't be distracted by holding it on to, oh, this is so great, and I want it to be more, and I don't want it to go away. And that can happen when meditating, and you're feeling good, oh, and you get distracted thinking about how wonderful it is. Or when you're with somebody, and you're feeling very good, or if you're eating something, and you're enjoying it. But the wrong mindfulness is to hold on to it, that this is so fantastic, and you make such a big thing out of it, and you're distracted by it. Enjoy it for what it is, and don't make anything special out of it. No big deal. Then the next one is uh, how we regard our mind. If we hold on and don't let go to the idea that my mind is uh, filled with, by its own nature, anger or selfishness, or I'm stupid, or I'm lazy, and you hold on to the fact that something that's inherently wrong with my mind and flawed with my mind, then again... We're not going to be able to concentrate. We're always thinking in terms of ourselves. And, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not this, I'm not that, I can't understand. You don't even try. If we hold on to the idea that uh, I'm confused and I don't understand, well, <laughs> it's hopeless, isn't it? Whereas right mindfulness, if you hold on to the fact that, well, temporarily I might be confused, temporarily I might be uh, unable to understand something, but that doesn't mean that that's the nature of my mind, that I'm stupid and so on. They just use concentration to try to work through it. And then the fourth one is in terms of our mental factors. Mental factors like intelligence, kindness, patience, and so on with the mental glue, not let go of the idea that this is the way that I am and everybody has to accept it and there's nothing that I could do to change or cultivate it. That's the wrong mindfulness. So instead, the right mindfulness is that all these factors can be developed. They're not frozen at a certain level. And then we can use them to cultivate, in this context, uh, concentration. It's really very strange if we analyze ourselves how we deal with being in a bad mood or how we deal with being depressed. We have wrong mindfulness. What does that mean? That we just hold on to it. We don't let go. 
And then we're stuck in it, aren't we? In this bad mood or depression. Or guilt. Guilt is also a wrong mindfulness. We made a mistake. We did something that was wrong. Well, fine, everybody makes mistakes. We're humans. But uh, with wrong mindfulness, we hold on to that. And we don't let go. I'm so bad. What I did was so bad. And then you hold it and you won't let go. You're beating yourself for how bad you are. You have to let go. So the right mindfulness is that moods can change. They come for causes and conditions and they will change by means of causes and conditions. Nothing stays forever. You know, one of the uh, pieces of advice which is very, very helpful that we find in the Buddhist teachings is basically to take control of yourself. Mm. Sounds a bit dualistic, but uh, in any case, just do it. It's like how we get up in the morning. You're lying in bed, you don't really want to get up. It's very comfortable and you're feeling a bit dull. Well, just take control of yourself and get up. That's how you get up, isn't it? So we do have the ability to do that. Otherwise, we'd never get up in the morning. And mindfulness is very, very important in a more general context. It prevents us from forgetting something. So if there's something that we need to do, you want to have the correct mindfulness. That helps us to then concentrate and do it. Otherwise, you forget. Mindfulness has to do with remembering. We might remember that my favorite television program is on tonight. So you're holding on to something that really is not so important. And you forget that you need to uh, buy some groceries for feeding the family. And you feel, oh, I forgot to go to the store. I forgot to pick this up. I forgot that I also had to get milk. So you're not holding on to the things that you need to hold on to. But you're holding on to things that are completely trivial. I want to get home so I can see the football match. And uh, also, if we are following some sort of training, correct mindfulness to hold on to it. I mean, it could be any type of training. Like, for instance, uh, if we're doing exercise, well, to hold on, to do your exercise every day. Or if you're on a diet, to remember that you're on a diet and not take that piece of cake when it's offered to you. Uh, Mindfulness was very uh, helpful. Our animal images, they're used a lot in Buddhist training, was very uh, helpful. Our animal images, they're used a lot in the Buddhist training. Очень полезно использовать образы животных, которые так часто встречаются в традиционных описаниях буддийских тренировок. So, we're working or we're meditating or we're doing something constructive, helping somebody, and then somebody says that, oh, there's cake. And then you become like a puppy dog. You jump up and down, ooh, cake, cake, like that, all excited. So if you think in terms of, am I acting like this puppy dog? that's so excited about it's going to get a bone or it's going to get a treat, then this is ridiculous. So mindfulness, hold on to what we're doing and not be distracted by all these things. So deals with how we regard our body and our feelings, happiness, unhappiness, etc. It's quite a wide topic. Okay, so any questions about this? Yeah. I found that it is much easier to keep mindfulness uh, while you're with some other people, but it's much harder to keep mindfulness when you are relating with your closer one, with your relatives, for example. Uh, so maybe it's very hard to be mindful of your ethics, and maybe you have some advice uh, what to do uh, if you know that you will be relating with the one who make your mindfulness uh, weaker. The general advice in such situations is to set a very strong intention at the beginning. So uh, when you're about to meet your relatives, 
or spend some time with them. That uh, strong intention that I will try to keep my temper. I will try to remember that they've been very kind to me. They're close to me. The way that I treat them is going to affect their feelings. These type of things, that strong intention to start with is uh, very important. And remind ourselves to start with that uh, they are human beings. In other words, don't just identify them with the role of mother, father, sister, brother, whichever type of relative that you're visiting or who is visiting you. Because if we look at them and hold on to, as mindfulness, hold on to them as only a certain role, mother, father, etc., then we tend to react to that with all our projections of what mother, father, and all the history that we've had. A lot of expectations and a lot of disappointments. But just try to relate to them as one human being to another human being. And if they're not mindful of that and they start uh, treating us like we're still 12 years old, don't fall into the pattern of then acting like a 12-year-old. How? (laughs) By remembering that they're a human being and don't play the game. It takes two to dance. My sister was visiting me for a week just before I came here. My older sister. And she would go to sleep at night fairly early. And then she would tell me as if she were my mother, well, go to sleep now, this sort of thing. Now, if I react like a 12-year-old and say, no, it's too early. I don't want to go to sleep. I want to stay up. Why are you telling me to go to sleep? then it just plays the same game, doesn't it? Uh, it doesn't help at all, and I just get upset. So what one has to remind oneself of is that she is uh, giving me this advice because she cares for me. She's not doing this because she wants to make me angry. She thinks that this is good for me. So you try to have a much more realistic view of what they're doing rather than project onto my sister, mother, and me being 12 years old or 8 years old. So, the intention before they come to try to stay mindful of this, and then while they are together with us, then reaffirming our motivation. Do that before, but uh, also while uh, we're with them all the time. The motivation means the goal. What goal do we want to have? The goal would be a nice interaction with this person. They care for me. I care for them. We have a long history together. So our aim is to have a nice time together. And then the emotion that goes with that. And the emotion is caring about this person as a human being. Also, another way of looking at it, which is helpful, rather than being this horrible ordeal, I have to uh, deal with my relatives, to see it as a challenge and an opportunity to grow. Like you're playing a computer game. This is a challenge. Can I do this? So it becomes fun. It's a challenge. Can I get through the dinner with my parents without losing my temper? And then your parents start to nag you, as often parents will do. Why don't you get married? Why don't you get a better job? (laughs) Why don't you have children already? Uh, This sort of thing. My sister, the first thing that she said when she saw me was, you need a haircut. (laughs) So, to recognize and say, well, thank you for being very concerned. Because they are asking that, because they are concerned. And to realize, what is the background that they're coming from? 
and the background they're coming from, for most of them, is all their friends are asking, well, what's your son doing? What's your daughter doing? And they have to socially interact with their friends. So that's behind their concern. They're not uh, doing, asking you this, why don't you get married already, out of malevolence. They have uh, to deal with their friends, and also they're concerned about your happiness. So oh. acknowledge that. That's the first step. Acknowledge it. Say it to them. I realize that you have this pressure on your friends and so on, and I realize that you're concerned about me. I, I appreciate that. And you explain, well, it's not so easy, or something like that, but to remain calm. But I think just the acknowledgement that uh, they have difficulty because of this is very helpful for them. It shows that you appreciate them and you have concern about them. That becomes a much more human-to-human relationship, equal-to-equal, rather than 12-year-old to the parent. Now, this mindfulness, what do we hold on to and not let go? And often what we hold on to is not productive at all. Often it is uh, old history of, well, you did this 10 years ago and you said that 30 years ago. And we hold on to it and we don't give anybody a chance. And it prevents, the context here prevents our concentration on the way they are now, doesn't it? We hold on to preconceptions, the mindfulness, the glue. We hold on to a preconception that this is going to be horrible. My parents are coming over, I have to have dinner with my parents, and this is going to be horrible. So we have decided with a preconception already that it's going to be terrible. So that already makes us very tense, doesn't it? So let go of that wrong mindfulness. And what you would apply correct mindfulness is that here's an opportunity, see how they are, and I will respond in terms of the situation as it unfolds, without the preconceptions. Anything else about mindfulness? It's a very important topic, really. Yeah. You mentioned this wrong type of mindfulness when, for example, we can be mindful about uh, football on TV but not mindful going to grocery and making some uh, basic things. But when we read about uh, the lives of great teachers of the past, we can see in examples that these people being uh, very profoundly uh, trained and very uh, highly realized beings uh, was um, almost unable to do anything else except practice and uh, wasn't able to make all these basic things. So how to find this uh, subtle balance? Well, I lived in India for 29 years with uh, great Tibetan masters. I was with them a, a great deal. And obviously there are individual differences, but I found with the uh, really highly developed masters that they are perfectly capable of dealing with practical things as well. Everything depends on each person's personality. You can't say that because of the training itself that it makes you incapable of uh, dealing with practical life. In general, some people are not very practical and other people are very practical. So, yes, I have met some great masters who weren't terribly practical, but the majority of the ones that I've personally had interaction with were very down-to-earth. Geshe Wangyal was a great uh, Kalmyk uh, Mongol. Geshe, first one that I uh, was with in America. He had a number of students living with him in America, New Jersey, and he would not only teach them Buddhist Dharma, but uh, he would also teach them how to sew, how to make their clothes, how to cook, how to build a house. He was unbelievably practical. 
or Serkan Rinpoche, my uh, main teacher, he was well known and famous for being able to figure out and uh, deal with very uh, complex problems, let's say, in a village or in a family or stuff like that. So people always came to him for practical advice. Dalai Lama himself is very practical in terms of schedule, how to deal with things, and uh, so on. So, of course, you can read accounts of masters who only stayed in caves and just meditated all the time, and we're always seeing all sorts of figures, dakas and dakinis and gods and stuff like that, very impractical in one sense. But uh, I wouldn't say the majority are like that, not at all. Yeah. So, uh, when we're speaking about stopping some um, uh, destructive intentions, uh, we might faultly uh, think about uh, suppressing our own feelings and become neurotic about it, about this suppressing our feelings. So, how to deal with that in a more balanced way? The approach is not, when you have anger, to try to just uh, suppress it and keep it inside. What uh, we're trying to do is to uh, get rid of the cause of the anger so that there is no anger. Don't so it's quite different. Now, it's true that the first level of uh, training, the first practice, is self-control. That's what ethical self-discipline is all about, self-control. So, for instance, we might be angry and I want to yell at you. Give a good example. You have a small child, you're a two-year-old, and you ask them to bring you a glass of water and they uh, bring it to you and they spill it and you get angry. Oh, you spilled the water on the rug or you spilled it on the computer or whatever, on my papers. So you get angry and you feel like yelling at the child or even hitting the child. So now there are two different tracks. First thing to do is exercise self-control and not hit the child or yell at the child. Now, based on that self-control, you can either suppress and keep that anger inside and be really, really annoyed and usually very unpleasant with the child. Now, analyze and think, well, it was actually my laziness that caused this because I didn't get up and get the glass of water myself. And what do I expect when I ask a two-year-old to bring a glass of water? Two-year-olds spill things. They trip. They're not careful. And if I yell at my child or hit the child, they're going to cry. It's going to be a whole big scene, and it'll be even worse. So, unlike just suppressing and keeping the anger inside, we dissolve the anger because we see there's really no reason to be angry. And then we can calmly say to the child, please be more careful, look what uh, happened, and so on, without making it into a terrible scene where the kid's going to cry, and so on. Anything else? Yes. So, are there any practical advices in training this mindfulness? Because it's very hard to keep mindfulness on these useful things and uh, we're always losing it. So, are there practical trainings for that? Practical training to uh, maintain mindfulness is, uh, as I said, intention. So, the strong intention to try to remember and familiarity. Familiarity means like, I mean, if you're taking notes or you read this on uh, my website, read it over and over again. How do you learn anything in school? You go over and over again, six times seven. Now, how do you remember that? Uh, so you go over and over again until you remember it. So uh, it's the same process. 
or you learn a language. It's the same process. It's just through repetition, familiarity, and in terms of dealing with our behavior, this intention. Then you use alertness, which is the alarm system to detect when you have lost your mindfulness and to bring the attention back. And all of this is based on what I call the caring attitude. You care about how you act and the effect of your behavior on others and yourself. If you don't care, I don't care. I don't give a damn what I do or how I act. And you're not going to maintain mindfulness. You're not going to have any discipline. And why do I care? Because you're a human being. My mother and father are human beings. They want to be happy. They don't want to be unhappy. The way that I speak with them, the way that I treat them, is going to affect their feelings, just as the way that they act and treat me affects my feelings. So I care about them. Then you maintain your mindfulness and that alertness to uh, detect if you lose the mindfulness. This is the basic foundation of this uh, whole sensitivity training that I've developed, which is on my website, a whole program for uh, helping us to overcome being insensitive to how other people are feeling or the effect of my behavior on others, or oversensitive, worrying too much. If we really care in a balanced way, not too much, not too little, about the effect of my behavior on others and on myself and the actual situation of what's going on with others and what's going on with myself, then we will maintain the mindfulness. We have a reason to. So we have to examine ourselves, really. What is our motivation? And if the motivation is, well, I want to be a good girl and I want to be a good boy, but mommy and daddy will like me, that's very childish, isn't it? As I... (laughs) I love the image that one of my teachers used. I just want to be a good boy and a good girl and I'll get a pat on the head and I'll wag my tail. Is this what I want? Like a dog. This is silly. So there needs to be a proper reason for being mindful, for having discipline and so on. And I think this caring attitude is uh, the basis. This is the way that it's explained by Shantideva, a great Indian Buddhist master. Okay, so let's go on. The third aspect that we apply here from the Eightfold Path in terms of concentration is called right concentration, so concentration itself. And this is the actual mental placement on an object. So what uh, we need to be able to uh, do is uh, get an actual hold on whatever thing we want to uh, concentrate on. Once we get the hold, the mindfulness keeps it there so that you don't lose it. But to first get the hold on the uh, object is uh, what concentration is all about. And when we have a a fault with that, then for instance, if we're speaking to somebody, we don't even place our attention. You need to use attention in order to get that concentration, that mental placement. And so it could be that I don't care, I'm not interested in what you have to say, and so I don't even actually listen, I don't concentrate on what you're saying. I'm too busy. Or what uh, is really happening very, very much nowadays, more and more than in the past, is that we have divided attention. So we're not concentrated on, if uh, you look at the news on the television, I don't know if you have that here, maybe you do, that uh, you have the person in the middle of the television screen or on your computer screen talking the news, but then underneath there's a, uh, a script which is going with a different news. And then maybe in the corner you have your Facebook uh, feed or something else going on and you're not paying attention 
or full concentration on any of them. So even though we might say, well, I can multitask, nevertheless, nobody is able, unless you're a Buddha, to put 100% concentration on all the things that you are multitasking. Our mental placement is on our cell phone while somebody's trying to talk to us. That's wrong mental placement because they're asking us something and we're not even paying attention. So we're distracted, we're too busy. Oh, I'm too busy, so we don't even pay attention and concentrate. We have mental placement on what somebody else is doing or saying. They want some sort of interaction or response from us. And then, (laughs) the other thing that is happening more and more these days is that even if we do have mental placement on uh, something, it's very difficult to sustain it because we're used to things changing so quickly and looking at one thing after another after another. So we get bored and it's hard to keep your attention for any protracted amount of time. So that type of concentration, which is uh, just for a few moments on this and then a few moments on that and a few moments on that, is an obstacle. That's wrong concentration. If uh, we want to be able to concentrate properly, we need to be able to concentrate for as long as is necessary. And not get bored and move on because uh, uh, we're no longer interested. See, the problem is that uh, we want to be entertained. That is, going back to this wrong mindfulness of thinking that the momentary pleasure that we get from being entertained is going to satisfy, but we thirst for more and more and more. Why should you be entertained? Social scientists have found out the more possibilities there are of what you could do, what you could look at, and the internet offers us unlimited amount of possibilities, the more bored you get. And the more tense it is to try to find something which is entertaining. You look at something and you think, well, but maybe something else is more entertaining. So you go on. You don't stay focused and concentrated on anything. So, although it is difficult to do, It uh, is very helpful to try to simplify your life, not have so many things going on at the same time. And only when you have very, very highly developed concentration, as it develops more and more, to be able to increase the scope of what you can take care of and deal with. If you have concentration, and it's good concentration, then you can concentrate on this, and then you can concentrate on that, and concentrate on that, but one at a time. If you think of an example, the uh, example would be a doctor. Doctors treating one patient after another. The doctor needs to be concentrated on that patient during the period of time when he or she is with that patient and not be thinking about the next patient and the one who that was just before. So, although a doctor can see many, many patients uh, during the day, fully concentrated on one thing at a time. This is uh, far better for concentration. This is uh, very challenging, I must say. As I know in myself, I'm dealing with such an unbelievable amount of uh, different tasks with uh, managing the website and dealing with all the different languages and so on. It's hard to stay focused on one thing because so many other things are coming in at the same time. So this is the, the big challenge, to stay focused on one thing and not be distracted by thinking of something else that needs to be done. And yet, remaining mindful, not forgetting that there are these other things that need to be done. And anybody who works in a complex business says the same thing. Okay, let's go on. So that we are able to fit everything into our time period. And developing right concentration, just to a concluding remark, is that there are definite stages 
for developing better and better concentration and that we find in the Buddhist teachings and I think that that could be considered part of Buddhist science. How do you get more and more concentration? Now, higher discriminating awareness to discriminate between what's correct and what's incorrect, what's helpful, what's harmful. For this we have uh, the last two of the Eightfold uh, Path, right view and right intention or motivating thought. So right view has to do with what we believe to be true based on discriminating correctly between what's correct and what's incorrect, what's helpful, what's harmful. And uh, right motivating thought or intention is the constructive state of mind that this leads to. So, right view. We could have either correct or incorrect discriminating awareness. We're talking about being able to discriminate what's helpful and what's harmful. We could discriminate correctly and believe that to be true. Or we could discriminate incorrectly and believe that to be true. So that's the wrong type of view. Is when we make the incorrect discrimination and believe it. And the right discriminating awareness is when we make the correct discrimination and believe that to be true. Wrong view would be, for instance, asserting and believing that our actions have no ethical dimension of some being destructive, some being constructive, and believing that they do not bring results in terms of what we experience. This is characterized by the mentality which many people have, the mentality of whatever. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Whatever. Do this or you don't do this. Doesn't matter. Whatever. That is an incorrect consideration, that it doesn't matter. It does matter. Whether you smoke or you don't smoke, whatever, it doesn't matter. It does matter. If you smoke, it will have negative consequences in terms of your health. If you don't smoke, it will uh, prevent that, hopefully. Or uh, believing that there's no way that we can improve ourselves and overcome our shortcomings. So why even bother? That's making a wrong discrimination that there is nothing that you can do to change your situation, that there's nothing that we can do to improve our situation. Right? There's always something that we can do. Things aren't static, fixed, and concrete. Or believing that there's no point in uh, trying to be kind to others or helping others. We should just try to take advantage of everybody and get as much profit as we can. It doesn't bring happiness. It brings conflict, jealousy, I'm worried about other people will steal my stuff, and so on. There's so many different uh, types of wrong discrimination. Uh, It can deal with suffering and its causes, for example. For instance, our child is uh, doing badly in school or in work, or our child doesn't want to see us, and something is going wrong with the child, whether it's a small child or an adult child. And the wrong discrimination would be to think that it's all because of me. It's my fault as the parent. This is the wrong discrimination about causality. Things do not arise or happen because of just one cause. Things happen because of a combination of many, many, many causes and conditions, not just one. We may have contributed, but we're not the sole cause of the problem. And sometimes we are not even the cause. It's totally mistaken. Like I am thinking of the example of a quite disturbed individual. They went to a football game and their team lost. And the person believed that the only reason that they lost was because they came to the football game. So they jinxed it. It was my fault that the the team lost. That is ridiculous. So incorrect discrimination about causality. So correct discriminating awareness is uh, 
very, very uh, important. And for that, we need to learn about reality, like uh, the reality of causation, that uh, so many causes and conditions affect what happens, like the weather. So many things uh, affect it, not just one thing or two things. So, not to misconceive that I am like God and I can just do one thing and it's going to change everything with my child or change everything with my work situation. It's not how things work. So that's right, discriminating awareness requires common sense intelligence. And obviously, we need to stay focused with concentration on our correct discrimination. And to be able to do that, you need the discipline. So these things fit together. So, the last one is a right motivating thought, which is referring to a right intention. So, having made a correct discrimination between what's helpful and what's harmful, what's reality, and uh, what is uh, not reality, then leads us, it affects the way that we act and speak and just our attitude about things. Uh, this is explained as uh, wrong motivating thought, or wrong intention, and right motivating thought. So let's see what these are. A wrong motivating thought would be to uh, be involved with uh, sensual desire, longing desire and attachment for sense objects, whether that's uh, seeing pretty things, music, good food, nice clothes, this type of thing as our motivating thought, because we've made an incorrect discrimination that this is the most important thing. Whereas uh, if we've made a correct discrimination, then we uh, will have equanimity. Equanimity here means a balanced mind free from attachment to sense objects. An example, incorrect discrimination would be that uh, it's really, really important what we have for supper tonight and where we eat. This is really going to bring me happiness if we choose the right place and I choose the right thing on the menu. And you're worried about it, so you can't even concentrate because well, where are we going to eat tonight? Whereas if you've made a correct discrimination, that it really is not so important. There are many other things in life that are far more important than what we have for supper or what's on the television tonight. Then we have a balanced mind. It doesn't matter. It's not so important. Find some place and just eat. And the uh, second set here, wrong motivating thought or intention, is uh, malice. The uh, wish to hurt somebody, to cause them harm. Like uh, somebody makes a mistake, a child spilled the water or the uh, tea on your computer. And you say, bad child, you're bad. So that's a wrong discrimination to think in terms of, you know, good and bad. You're bad and should be punished. We have made the wrong discrimination that the two-year-old will act as responsibly as an adult, which is absurd. That is clearly a wrong discrimination. The two-year-old is going to sit quietly during the whole train ride and behave like an adult. It is absurd. But if we make that wrong discrimination, then really angry and you might want to uh, hit the child if uh, the child is uh, running up and down the aisle and making a lot of noise on the train. Whereas uh, if we make the correct discrimination, then we will develop benevolence, that's the wish to help others, to bring them happiness. So you make preparation. If you're going to go on a long train ride with a child, you bring things to amuse the child, coloring book or something. And this benevolence encompasses or includes strength and forgiveness and love, the wish for the other to be happy. 
If they make a mistake and they make noise, you don't hold a grudge. But you're forgiving and you have strength so that uh, you uh, maintain this uh, kind state of mind. And the third one, third type of wrong motivating thought is a mind which is filled with cruelty. And there are various uh, aspects here. Hooliganism, being a hooligan, is a cruel lack of compassion with which we wish others to uh, suffer and to be unhappy. We uh, discriminate that the followers of this other football team are just horrible, horrible people, and uh, we can uh, act like a hooligan and get into fights with them and uh, hurt them because they like this other team. I mean, what a silly discrimination. Second uh, variant of this is self-hatred. It's a cruel lack of self-love with which we don't want ourselves to be happy, so we sabotage our happiness and hurt ourselves. So we discriminate incorrectly that I'm no good, I'm a bad person, I don't deserve to be happy. And we, in a sense, punish ourselves by getting into unhealthy relationships, having unhealthy habits, you know, people who overeat and then become obese, usually they're filled with self-hatred. They have this very negative attitude toward themselves, and even though they might want to find a partner, they sabotage it by just eating more and more and more, so they become more and more unattractive, and they'd never get a partner when they weigh 200 or 300 kilos. And then the uh, last one is taking perverse pleasure. It's cruelly rejoicing when seeing or hearing of others suffering. You discriminate that. Uh, this politician is bad, a terrible person, and then they lose the election and we rejoice. Ah, great, they lost. Or, uh, again, something bad happens to somebody that we don't like, and uh, ah, they deserve that. So again, we're discriminating incorrectly that certain people are bad and deserve to be punished for things not to go well, and then other people, particularly ourselves, deserve for everything to go well. So the right motivating thought, based on correct discrimination, would be a non-violent uh, attitude, non-cruel attitude. It's not merely the lack of anger, but it is the imperturbability. You don't get disturbed. It's the state of mind in which uh, you don't wish to cause harm to others who are suffering or to irritate or annoy them. We make a correct discrimination. This is a human being wants to be happy, doesn't want to be unhappy, they have the same right to be happy and not to be unhappy as I do. So based on that correct discrimination, then we don't want to cause them harm. We aren't happy when things go badly with them. We don't want to irritate and annoy them. And it has, in addition, compassion, the wish for them to be free of their suffering and its causes, because we see that everybody is suffering and nobody wants to suffer and nobody deserves to suffer. When people make mistakes, it's because they're confused. They are mistaken. It's not because they're bad. So, with uh, right discrimination and uh, right motivating thought, intention that uh, comes from that, then that naturally leads us to right speech, right action, right activity. So these things fit together, these eight factors, the Eightfold Path. So the right view and motivating thought provide the proper foundation for practice, and then the practice, right speech, right action, right uh, livelihood. We discriminate what is uh, correct in terms of uh, effect of my behavior and uh, the situation of others and so on. So my intention is to help them, not harm them. And therefore, I have the discipline to not speak or act 
toward them or try to do business with them in a way that's going to be destructive or harmful. It makes sense. It fits together. And on that basis, I will try to make effort to improve myself, to develop more good qualities and not be distracted by weird ideas about my body and feelings and things like that. And then use concentration to stay focused on something that's beneficial or working to develop better qualities. And then use that concentration with correct discriminating awareness and then the intention that follows from that. So it's all interconnected. Sorry, after <laughs> beneficial qualities, I already lost it. When you stay focused yeah. and uh, concentrated on your efforts to uh, develop better qualities, mm -hmm. then, of course, uh, you can apply that in correct discriminating awareness. You see more deeply what is beneficial, what's harmful, and then your intention becomes even stronger. So, although one can present these three trainings and the Eightfold Path as a, a sequence, and they can be presented in several different sequences, the ultimate aim is to be able to put them all into practice together as an integrated whole. So, we have a few more minutes left for any final questions. Yes. You mentioned that one of the false views is when we consider that we are unable to change something. Unable to change ourselves. Buddha said that everything is interdependent and there are a whole lot of different things which are interdependent and we are unable to um, understand all this system and it is impossible for one state to appear without a connection with the previous state. So then we can conclude that our current state is uh, dependent on our past state, our, our previous state, and it also would be a cause for our future state. So the a question appears, is there any place in all this mechanism for free will? Uh, and could, uh, can uh, Buddhism afford uh, any way of uh, dealing with that uh, uh, situation of getting out of this mechanism? Well, there are uh, many, many factors that uh, are involved here. If you think of uh, free will, free will implies that you can do anything without any cause. That's impossible. Everything arises from causes and conditions, that's true. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can't put in effort. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can't put in effort, so-called willpower, Not to actually do something. If we do put in effort, of course that's for a cause. I mean, there are causes for that and conditions for that. But uh, one shouldn't go to this extreme, the two extremes do absolutely anything without any cause for it, or that uh, there is nothing that you can do because everything is already determined beforehand. It's not like that. We have to see that uh, in terms of putting effort into things and making choices, etc., it's not like, here's a me which is separate from all choices, and here are all the choices, like on a menu, and I'm going to choose what to do. That dualistic way of looking at it is false. I mean, that's not the way that things exist. One just does things. You just do it with effort. And there can be inspiration from the spiritual teachers, from the teachings, from the Buddhas, etc. That can help us. And if they help us, then we're inspired. That's also because of causes. So the problem here in this issue is thinking of these two categories of free will or determinism. 
and that's a false discrimination. It's based on the fact of uh, thinking of a truly existent me that can choose things freely from a menu or that is stuck in a position that uh, is static and can never uh, change. That whole way of trying to analyze in these two categories is false because neither of those two categories exist. But your question is a very profound question and not something that can be answered very simply or just given a simple answer that, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. It's something that uh, really requires very deep reflection and understanding on causality. You know, the so-called voidness of cause and effect, how cause and effect actually works. And the, the key to it is to not look at causality in a dualistic way. There is a me separate from the whole process that either can choose or is uh, forced to do something by something else. Like I'm just a, a pawn of a chess piece and I'm being manipulated by deterministic things that are external to me. That again is very dualistic. And that's the problem here and the issue is uh, dualism. So, anything else? Last question. You mentioned that uh, one has to be uh, compassionate not only uh, for others, to others, but also for yourself, and also in terms of uh, proper diet, proper amount of sleep, and proper amount of exercises. But when we read about some uh, highly realized practitioners sitting in retreats, they had stiff bodies while they were sitting for uh, long hours, and weren't eating properly, and uh, haven't enough sleep. So where is the connection between these two? So some of the students are trying to make the same things as they did. Well, this is a big, big mistake. This is uh, referred to as a, uh, a fox trying to jump where a lion jumps. To think that we are on the same level as Milarepa or any of these uh, great masters is complete arrogance, isn't it? We're not at that level. So to try to imitate what they do now we just damage ourselves. So if we want to achieve the state that they've achieved, well, realistically, step by step, train to get to that level. And when you reach a very highly developed uh, level of concentration, then you attain what's known as physical and mental uh, state of fitness and pliancy. So you're not stiff. Your body is not stiff. And they have control over the energies and so on of their body. So they don't require sleep. It's not damaging for them to get very little sleep and they're able to eat very, very little and get a tremendous amount of energy. So it's not that they are suffering and neglecting themselves, but as a part of the attainment of these very high states, they have these abilities. But we're not at that level. And what these great masters show to others is often a show so that people can relate to them better. I'll use an example of my own teacher. Sirkin Rinpoche, the old one, was uh, quite old and very much overweight, as many of them are. And uh, I uh, was with him for nine years almost every day, and uh, would need to help him when he got up and so on. But uh, once I was at this uh, type of ritual in which the monks all get together and they read the scriptures and everybody reads a different portion out loud, and these are with loose-leaf uh, pages. They're not bound together. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama is sitting here, Sergeant Rinpoche is sitting next to him, and I'm sitting behind. And uh, 
his holiness is reading and the wind blows and a page of uh, what he was reading falls on the floor. And Serkin Rivache, whom I always had to give my hand to help him to get up, jumps up like he's 20 years old, jumps up and gets the piece of paper and hands it to the Dalai Lama. So obviously he was just a show that uh, you know he needs help in getting up. He's obviously capable of getting up. And uh, he always uh, slept in a room by himself. But uh, once when uh, I was traveling with him, the Tibetan attendant who was with him, the arrangements were such that there wasn't a separate room and he had to share the room with uh, Rinpoche. So Rinpoche would go to sleep just before everybody else went to sleep. And then when everybody was asleep, he'd get up. The attendant saw that he'd get up and he would be doing meditation, he'd be doing these exercises from the six yogas of Naropa, which you can't imagine that an old fat man could do. And then just before everybody would get up in the morning, then he would lie down and pretend that he had slept the whole night. So, you know, you have this sort of thing, you know, they give the impression to others that they are regular people, but uh, they hide all their qualities. This is... uh, the way that uh, the great lamas are, at least some of them. So, very inspiring, and we can develop ourselves to the stage through three trainings and eightfold path. That's the start, can be done on the level of just uh, helping us to uh, improve this lifetime, or it can be done on a deeper level to help us to attain better future lives, liberation from uncontrollably recurring rebirth and suffering, and enlightenment, the ability to be of best help to everyone. So that uh, brings our course to the end. Thank you very much, and I hope that this will be some benefit.